Previously on Flying the Line. One of ALPA's oldest pilot groups ponders a break with the union as tensions rise over the issue of flight engineers. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 22, American Airlines Goes It Alone, Part 2. Charlie Ruby saw no alternative but to begin formal expulsion proceedings against the American Airlines leadership. In October 1962, ALPA's executive committee passed a resolution affirming the crew complement policy once more and ordered the dissidents to reshape negotiations to comply. Nick O'Connell attended the meeting. Faced with a warning that the American Airlines' course could lead to serious trouble, O'Connell agreed to inform the negotiating committee of the executive committee's views. He flatly refused, however, to obey the executive committee's order to recess negotiations. Two tense months passed, during which the negotiators defied the ALPA executive committee and continued meeting with the company. In a final attempt to restore internal harmony, Charlie Ruby asked for a meeting with the full American Airlines Negotiating Committee in New York in December 1962. The meeting was inconclusive. A few days later, Ruby met with the American Airlines MEC in Chicago. Ruby warned the American pilots that adherence to ALPA's crew complement policy was vital. The American Airlines Negotiating Committee denounced ALPA's leaders for interference with their efforts to achieve a complete solution of the crew complement issue. To no avail, Ruby again pleaded with the pilots to get back on the crew complement reservation. Ruby's appeal to 1930s-style unity fell on deaf ears. A few days later, Ruby called Bill Whitaker, the American Airlines executive who was negotiating with the runaway committee. Noting that the negotiating committee was proceeding in violation of ALPA's constitution and bylaws, Ruby warned Whitaker that signing a contract would lead to legal action under the Railway Labor Act. Ruby's threat gave Whitaker pause. No corporate executive wants to be responsible for costly legal action. In a conference between the leadership and Whitaker, the company apparently promised to sign a favorable contract with the pilots if the pilots would in turn agree to leave ALPA and form a company union. During that meeting, the American Airlines MEC faced the moment of truth. For years, they had been threatening to go the route of company unionism. Now, at long last, they had to decide. The company was dangling an enticing package of wages and working conditions, premised on their pilots' willingness to deny the flight engineers the benefits of the Taylor Board settlement. The dissidents took the bait and declared the pilots are agreeable to implementation of said contract with or without formal approval from ALPA. The die was cast. On January 11th, 
the executive committee authorized Charlie Ruby to file suit against American Airlines for violation of the Railway Labor Act. That same day, Ruby wrote to American President C.R. Smith, ALPA's old nemesis, that any negotiations or agreements on behalf of the pilots in your employ must be conducted and made only with the consent of this association, which is the authorized bargaining agent. On January 18th, Whitaker answered Ruby's letter, stating that the company had no alternative but to conclude an agreement since the persons in question occupy official status as members of the association's negotiating committee and appear to represent a majority of the company's pilots. Ruby promptly appealed to rank-and-file American Airlines pilots over the heads of their own elected leadership. Beginning in late January 1963, he sent out a series of bulletins to the American Airlines pilots in an attempt to correct their perceptions. But only the American Airlines pilots could save themselves from the uncharted seas of company unionism. The Alpa loyalists there began to rally for a desperate last-ditch attempt to stop their own runaway leadership, which was already circulating authorization to act cards among the rank and file. The ensuing contest between the pilots left deep scars that persisted for years to come. Suffice it to say that the struggles of the minority of Alpa loyalists were foredoomed to failure, for the dissidents had been too long in control, and their propaganda campaign against Alpa had become too ingrained in the mental patterns of rank-and-file American Airlines pilots, whose indifference to Alpa affairs had left them poorly equipped to make judgments. But more important than the political tactics used by the separatists was the company's offer of an enticing package of wages and working conditions in return for the American Airlines pilots' desertion of ALPA. The American Airlines leadership argued that they were the wave of the future, that other airlines would quickly follow them out of ALPA. The American Airlines group made formal overtures to Pan Am, but the Pan Am group turned them down cold. Then they approached TWA, where John Carroll, the former master chairman and defeated presidential candidate, fronted for them. Carroll argued strongly in favor of the American Airlines' approach to crew complement policy in a letter to TWA master chairman Russ Derrickson denouncing the Taylor Board settlement at TWA. In response to Carroll's propagandizing in favor of the American Airlines separatists, Alpa loyalist Tom Latta declared in a letter to Derrickson, crew compliment is not the issue. One further motive in the American Airlines leadership group's desire to leave Alpa must be mentioned. Alpa loyalists insist that the leaders had engaged in a constant pattern of financial misconduct that Sayan had accepted, but hard-nosed Charlie Ruby would not. At Ruby's request, Roy Dooley of American made a carefully documented study of the flight payloss requests of the negotiating committee in MEC. What Dooley found later led him to urge AFL CIO President George Meany to seek prosecution of the American Airlines leaders 
under the financial misconduct sections of the Landrum-Griffin Law. Apparently, early in the Ruby administration, the new treasurer, Scotty Devine of United Airlines, approached former master chairman John O'Connell for some answers on the flight payloss requests coming in from American Airlines pilots. For instance, a pilot who could only hold a co-pilot bid was applying for captain's payloss at 100% for over 84 hours of night flying. The person who actually flew those trips was in the top 10 on the seniority list, and this guy was hundreds of numbers down the line. It was just plain theft, and it was very common among that crowd. It took Roy Dooley months to assemble all the evidence, with dossiers spread around his basement on members of the various American Airlines committees. It takes an expert understanding of the American Airlines system to interpret the flight payloss requests, but all bore the same authorizing signature, a staff negotiator who later defected to American Airlines. Apparently, their pilots used ALPA to increase their salaries without having to go sliding down any wet runways at night. The dossiers showed a pattern of deliberate excessive compensation at ALPA's expense. They didn't have the right to that money, and they were not using it for anything that was of any benefit to the American pilots. It was clear-cut fraud. Human motivation is complex. We will never know if the American Airlines leader's decision to secede from ALPA was motivated by the fear that Charlie Ruby would expose their flight payloss habits to the rank-and-file pilot. By the time Roy Dooley, Breezy Wynn, and others had mounted a campaign to acquaint the American Airlines pilots with their leader's peculiar flight payloss habits, the situation was so ripe with charges countercharges, and lawsuits that nobody believed them. In February 1963, the executive board met in emergency session in Chicago to endorse Ruby's position, to denounce the American Airlines leadership group, and to advise management formally that they are not the bargaining representative of the American pilots. Nick O'Connell, and other members of the American Airlines group were present at that meeting. It was the last time American Airlines leaders and ALPA leaders met formally. Kay McMurray, Ruby's executive assistant, came to the February 21st negotiation between the dissidents and management in New York. McMurray informed the gathering that they were in violation of the law and then left the room. On March 1, 1963, ALPA filed suit against the American Airlines Pilot Group, their negotiating committee, and Nick O'Connell personally, alleging that there had been influence and coercion by the company in the choice by pilots of their representatives in violation of the law. On April 26, 1963, O'Connell and other members of the negotiating committee were expelled from ALPA. In response, the dissidents announced the formation of the Allied Pilots Association, or APA.
and petition the National Mediation Board for a representative election. For the next two months, the dissidents waged a fierce campaign against ALPA among the rank and file, alleging misdeeds that the committee, headed by Harold Miller, found impossible to counter effectively. The results were predictable. In June 1963, the National Mediation Board reported that 84% of American Airlines' 1,571 pilots had authorized APA as their bargaining agent. The overwhelming majority that the dissidents secured from American Airlines pilots was probably decisive in the legal proceedings. A U.S. District Court judge ruled against ALPA in August 1963. There was nothing for ALPA to do but appoint trustee councils at American Airlines to look after the interest of the 236 anti-APA pilots there. Subsequently, the ALPA diehards were permitted apprentice status and remained on the roster. Many of them eventually drifted into APA until finally only a dozen or so remained. Eventually, many of the loyalists found it necessary, for both protection and to establish a sense of community, to join APA. By late 1963, many ALPA members were fed up with the American Airlines Group, but Charlie Ruby, like most ALPA members, felt the average American pilot should not be punished for the sins of their leaders. There is a sizable element of American pilots who do not wish to leave ALPA, Ruby opined, and he could not, in good conscience, abandon them. In the aftermath of the split, the President's Department of ALPA functioned as the MEC for dues-paying ALPA members still at American Airlines, and permitted a special delegation of loyalists, headed by former Master Chairman John O'Connell, to attend the 1964 convention. A number of lingering problems, such as the disposition of the substantial property, typewriters, office equipment, and the like, remained to be settled. On August 24, 1963, ALPA's Executive Committee established a policy toward American Airlines that persist until today. ALPA resolved to stick by its loyal American Airlines members and hire outside legal counsel to protect their representational rights as long as there were members requesting such services. This conciliatory policy toward the defecting American Airlines pilots reflected the views of most ALPA members the old-timers had not forgotten the contributions of the American Airlines Group. The pilots of Trans-Texas remembered a time when it appeared they had no one else to turn to and they were about to be scabbed, but the American pilots made it known in no uncertain terms that they intended to back them all the way. For labor historians, ALPA is a stunt done with mirrors. In the face of an almost constant oversupply of pilots, ALPA has somehow managed to protect the minority of pilots with airline jobs from the iron law of wages. The first generation of professional airline pilots made ALPA's living denial from the constant race to the bottom 
by careful application of the difficult arts of conciliation and compromise. Their fundamental goal was always unity across company lines. Dave Banke never tired of preaching this gospel. The second generation of professional airline pilots, those who reached their prime in 1963, somehow forgot this fundamental lesson, perhaps because they had never been exposed to the predatory personnel policies that made life so difficult for their predecessors. The first generation of pilots knew that without the strength professional airline pilots derived from each other, they would all be vulnerable in front of their antagonists. In the brave new world of deregulation, that's a lesson worth pondering. And if the past is truly prologue, then perhaps it's time for the pilots of American Airlines to come home. Next time on Flying the Line, new technologies open the door to progress, but the transition to the jet age isn't without problems or controversy. Thank you for listening. This has been part two of chapter 22 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2020. All rights reserved.